Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. As Gianna said, my name is Daniel Lanning, and I am the instrument, not the organ coach, different. Um, For those of you guys who haven't met me yet, and I'm the interim pastor here uh, for you guys during this season, I I work full-time at Springfield Faith Center, um, the church that many, many years ago, Westside was actually planted out of Springfield Faith Center. For those of you guys who don't know, when Gabe and Nicole first planted this church, Gabe was my youth pastor when I was in in high school. So he and I go way back. I've known him for a long time, and we were part of the the sending church when when this church was first birthed. So... It's my pleasure to be here during this time. For those of you guys who don't know, um, this church right now is looking for a new lead pastor, and it's you know created a season of just kind of everything sort of being frustratingly on pause. I don't know for some of you guys who've been here for a while, maybe that's the sense that you guys have. But the good news is that God is still real. Amen? And that God is still here in this place, and he is still moving in the lives of the people who come to trust him. Amen? That you guys, during this season, even though some things feel uh, held back and on pause, God is still faithful, and he is meeting us here in this space to be with us. So, on that, as part of that conversation, I've been continuing to talk to the district. Our assistant district supervisor is David Eddy right now. And uh, he is still having, trying to have conversations and looking for people and praying as he looks for the next senior leader of this church. So I encourage you guys, please be praying with him. Please be praying for him, for our district leadership, because God knows what he's doing in this season right now. And God has next steps for this church, and he knows where he is leading this church And so let's just pray that we can trust in him and be following his leading and that he will be faithful as he cares for us and leads this church into the future together. Amen? Amen. And that becomes especially important because when the district first asked me to come and be the interim here, it was at the beginning of August, and they asked me to do it through the end of September. I don't know if you guys are paying attention or looking at your calendars, but the end of September is coming up very, very shortly. And I've been praying and talking to the district and talking to my lead pastor, Brandon, at SFC, and trying to, you know, figure out like what my involvement can continue to look like here. And so I do need to let you know that I am going to be stepping back from the interim role because my responsibilities, <laughs> thank you, um, because my responsibilities at SFC during the season obviously falls in important. People are going back to school and I'm starting to find myself divided in my time commitments and things like that. And it stinks because I... I love this church, and I love this space, and I love you guys. I was sharing with Shannon beforehand. For me, I'm in a season of life. I don't know if anyone else can relate to this. I did not plan to talk about this this morning. It's not part of the message. This is just a freebie, okay? But over the course of my life, some of you may be able to relate to this. I um, don't like emotional pain. Anybody else? (laughs) Not my favorite thing ever. And so... I have developed some habits for me, uh, some self-defense mechanisms and coping mechanisms where I tend to like emotionally restrain myself and and stay kind of distant. And wouldn't you know it, that's not the healthiest way to live, it turns out. And so I'm in a season where God has been challenging that part of me and he's been giving me challenges and commands to emotionally invest myself in places. And this has been one of the places where he has said, I want you to emotionally invest yourself in Westside for this season. And so now I'm at a moment now where I'm like, I, but I care about this space now. I don't like, you know, can't 
And, and so it makes the decision, like, how much can I do? How much can I oversee? Especially difficult. So, but unfortunately, I am going to be stepping back. Now, I am still, I want to stay connected as a relational and a pastoral resource for you, for the church, for the staff. And so you can pester your staff. If there's something that, that you need from me anywhere that I can step in and serve, please, you know, reach out and contact me. I want to stay connected to the church because uh, you matter. This place matters. What God is doing here matters. And God is invested in this space. That's actually one of the things we're going to talk about this morning. As I wanted to have a conversation, because I know that over the course of the next month, you guys are going to be looking at the book of James. And the book of James is outstanding, but it's also fascinating because James talks a lot about what a Christian life looks like. And there's this inherent tension to the book of James. I don't know if you guys knew this, but historical side note, okay, back in the Middle Ages when the reformer Martin Luther broke away from the Catholic Church and began what would become the Protestant Reformation of which we are like the the very distant ancestors. We have inherited the work that he did. He was not a big fan of the book of James. Okay, in fact, Martin Luther actually wanted it taken out of the Bible and removed because James talks so much about how you live and what you do. And at the time, the Catholic Church was not handling those things particularly well. It was not the healthiest season of history for them. And so Martin Luther was, was reacting to some of the baggage that he was coming away from, saying, I've seen Christian living so poorly mishandled, I don't even want to think about it. All I want to focus on is the grace of God and the value of humanity because of the love of his son Jesus for us. And so as you guys move forward to talk about the book of James, I wanted to pause and give, I've titled the message this morning, Value Versus Fruit, a preamble to the book of James. <laughs> Value versus fruit, okay? So if you guys have your Bibles this morning, uh, open up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We are going to be looking at verses 28 through the end of the chapter, and these are very well-known verses. As we read these this morning, some of you are going to be... Uh, you are going to recognize many, many of the things that Paul says here. These are often quoted verses. But I want to talk about them because Paul starts to lay the groundwork for some of that conversation, this idea of this sort of inherent tension between what is our value in the eyes of God, what is his opinion of us, and the fruit that our lives bear, and how we participate in the kingdom, because those are two distinct, related, but distinct things. So let's pray this morning as we continue in our time together. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for this opportunity, for this church, for the people who are here. God, I just pray your blessing upon this space. I pray that you would be continuing to speak and to move. Be with us this morning. Open our hearts. Open our ears. Help us to hear from you. Help us to receive from you. God, let us be transformed and changed. Make us more like your son, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So let's begin with the first few verses in this section. Let's read verses, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. It says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. How many of you guys find these verses pretty familiar? 
Does anyone have a mug at home with the verse, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. Anybody have that mug at home? No one? Zero hands? I'm impressed. Usually somebody has that mug. Romans 8.28 is one of the most quoted verses in Scripture. It's one that people come back to over and over and over again. It's a beautiful verse, and I love it. But it also gets accused a lot of being misunderstood and of being taken out of context. And part of the reason that it deals with that accusation is because Paul uses the word good in there, and we don't particularly understand the word good very well sometimes. How many of you guys have realized the definitions of words are important in life? Anybody had a moment where you were uh, well-meaningly using a particular word because you thought you knew what it meant only to discover, okay? And it's one of those, I don't know if you guys love the movie The Princess Bride the way that I do, but Inigo Montoya has that quote, you keep on using this word. I do not think it means what you think it means, right? I had a friend a number of years ago, and yes, I did ask his permission to share this story. I had a friend a number of years ago, and you have to understand, this friend of mine is very outgoing, very like enthusiastic, loves to meet people, and he's a missionary kid. He actually grew up overseas in a different culture his whole life. He moved back here to come to college, and so his family was American, he spoke fluent English, but he had not grown up in American culture at all. And so he came, and there were just certain words or certain phrases or certain nuances of meaning that were totally foreign to him because he grew up in a totally different culture and among a totally different people. And so he and I were talking one day, and he, I was having a rough day, and he wanted to encourage me, and he wanted to say, Dan, do you need a hug, okay? But he was like, hug is not a strong enough word. I need a stronger word for, like, physical affection that I can show to him right now. And so what he said was, Dan, do you need me to grope you? <laughs> My response was, of course, a resounding no. That is absolutely not what I need right now. That is not going to improve the day's circumstances. That's not going to make me feel any better. He had no idea what the word meant. He knew that it was related to, to physical affection and a hugging, but he did not understand that that word has very specific connotations, doesn't it? It has very specific intent, very specific meaning. It is not necessarily the best word to use in that circumstance. And so he then, I had a real confused look on my face and he was like, I said the wrong thing, didn't I? And he walked away and he looked up the definition of the word and I heard him yell from down the hallway when he found the definition, his apology. And then he came and talked to me and apologized and we got over it, thankfully. But it remains like this, this humorous point between the two of us and really like it is indicative of his adjustment to life here in the States as he's gone through that a number of times. But this idea that definitions matter, they're important. And understanding what we mean when we use certain words is incredibly important because when Paul uses the word good here in this story, he has something very specific in mind. He has a very specific meaning and an intent. And how many of you guys have discovered over the course of your lives that God's perspective on what is good for us is often different than our perspective on what is good for us? Anybody discovered that before? Okay. It's yeah, every minute I heard somebody say, that's right, because we tend to be very, and I mean this in the best way possible, we tend to be very short-sighted and, and temporal creatures. I tend to be concerned with now and here and in this moment, and it is easy for me to fall into a place of assuming that the greatest good for my life is the thing that makes me feel good now. 
is the thing that makes me feel comfortable or taken care of or safe or secure or in control of the factors of my life. And so frequently what I find is God is far, it's not that he doesn't care about those things, but God cares less about those things than he cares about the long-term good of my life and his opinion of good. And sometimes those two things are very different from each other. I'm reminded of the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. If you've never read Joseph's story before, it starts in Genesis chapter 37, and Joseph goes on a wild ride. If you've ever heard the story of the the coat of many colors, that's from Joseph's story. And as a young man, God gives him a dream, and it's a dream of greatness. And he says, you're going to rule, and you're going to command, and you're going to be in charge of your whole family and all of your brothers, and you're going to do great things. And Joseph makes the mistake of going and telling his brothers, hey, I had this dream, I'm going to be in charge one day. And they reacted much as brothers do, they sell him into slavery. (laughs) Right? And nobody else has had that happen to you before? And then Joseph goes on this long, long journey. He gets sold into slavery, and he's owned. He, he, gets, he gets taken to Egypt and sold as a slave there. He lives as a slave. He ends up getting arrested and going to jail. He almost gets executed. And so finally, through this wild, miraculous circumstance, series of events, he gets brought before Pharaoh, and God speaks to him miraculously and helps him help the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. And the Pharaoh is the one who finally says, there is a God, and he is in you. And he is speaking to you. I need your help. And so he takes Joseph from prison and elevates him and makes him the second most powerful man in the nation at the time. And Joseph rules second only to Pharaoh for many, many years. And God uses him instrumentally in the lives of his family and in the nation of Israel over the course of the next few years. And so God does ultimately fulfill the dream that he gave Joseph as a young man. But the road to get there was not comfortable. Okay? And we can look through all of scripture and we can look at story after story of God doing similar things. God working with people, moving them toward the good that he has in mind for them, the plan that he has designed and created. And in the process of taking them in that direction, he consistently asks them to lay down their temporary short-term desires so that he can help walk them toward the good that he has for them in the future. God is so dedicated to us that he refuses to let us settle for less than what he has planned for us. And this will often lead us into places that don't seem all that good to us at first. God plays the long game. I'm interested in today, in right now. What am I going to eat for lunch? What am I going to do this afternoon? How am I going to take care of myself? Who's going to win the football games today? Okay? God is playing the long game. And it's not that the little details don't matter to him. They do matter. But with the healthy eye of an all-wise parent, he is watching the moments of my life going, son, you've got to understand these things are small potatoes compared to what I am planning for you in the long run, in the future. And he is doing that with each of us. So what is his idea of good? If Paul isn't talking about comfort or security or wealth or any of the other temporal things that we often associate with our good, what is he after? And we're told in verse 29, Paul uses this phrase. He says, those God has predestined, they are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's long game for us all is to become more like Jesus. He wants us to look like his son. And because Jesus himself is the exact representation of God the Father, he wants us to look like him, like God the Father. He wants there to be a family resemblance. And we're reminded of that familial imagery right away because Paul says, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
That's what God is interested in. God is interested in drawing us into his family and having us look like members of his family. He wants to transform us into Christ-likeness. And not in some way that erases our individuality or our, he doesn't want to make us personless clones of each other. I don't know if you guys have ever wrestled with that before, but a lot of times it's easy to sort of fall into that place that God's goal is to just whitewash us all so that we all look like carbon copies of each other. That's not the case at all. God is the creator of our diversity and he loves it. He intended every tribe, tongue, nation, right? That's the cry in all of the New Testament, that God wants the whole earth. We are all the creation of his hands, and he wants us all in his family. But he is talking about a family resemblance, where you can look at a person and you can say, I know which family they come from. Has anyone ever been like had that moment where they were like, oh, you remind me of your dad or your mom or your brother or sister? Anybody had that? Anybody ever been like frustrated by that and mad when you got compared, okay? Sometimes it is annoying, but in the best case circumstances, at the healthiest moments, I love being associated with my family. I love the last name that I have. I love, for those of you guys, again, who don't know my story, my dad was a Foursquare pastor his, my whole life, okay? I grew up in Foursquare church plants and in Foursquare churches. He was a pastor in this area for 25 years before he passed away in 2020. And my dad left a legacy behind that I am proud to be the exemplifier of. And I am proud to carry it on. I love being a part of the family that I come from and being who I am. And God wants the same thing for us. He uses this family imagery because he wants us to resemble him, the Father. That when we look at each other, we should see Christ in each other. We should see God in each other. Amen? That's his plan for us. That when Paul talks about good here, that's what he has in view. God is invested in this process of bringing us into his family and working that family resemblance into who we are. And again, part of the difficulty is that he is far more dedicated to our Christ-likeness than he is to our comfort. And he will allow us to go through discomfort if it leads to to us being more like Jesus. Jesus himself went through tremendous discomfort in the process of becoming himself, didn't he? Why would we expect any less for our lives? Now Paul ends verse 30 with the words, "Those, uh, um, those he called, he also justified, And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And those two words, justified and glorified, I want to talk about that because they're really important in the context of the conversation Paul's having. And they lay the groundwork for what comes after this. So let's talk about the word justify for a second. It's a fancy word that means to prove that something is right or proper or true. When a person is justified, it usually means that their actions have been fully explained and that the decisions have been shown to be the right decisions. It's that moment where you go, aha, now I understand why you did what you did, and I agree that you did the right thing. I, anybody love like when other people do that for you, when they see you clearly, and you have that moment of vindication, and you're like, yes, someone saw that I got it right. This is the best, okay? Those moments are good, but that's that sense of being justified, of being found right or proven true. But the fascinating thing about what Paul is talking about here and about the character of God is that Paul has in mind much the same idea, only much, much more deeply, doesn't he? Paul says that God has justified those he called, but God's goal for us is nothing so small as simply making good decisions or defending our actions. 
God is interested in something altogether holier because when Paul uses the word justified, he means that God has made us righteous. He has used of us the same word that he uses for himself. The word righteous essentially means to live and to act in the way that God himself would live and act. And that leaves us with an incredibly important question. Why would God say that about us? Why would God justify us? What does he mean? Is it because Paul is describing a person who finally has it all together? And who's finally arrived at a method of living that meets with God's approval so thoroughly that God himself is forced to admit, yeah, that person's got it all together. They got it figured out. Is that what Paul has in mind when he writes this? No. And in fact, we're in chapter 8. He spent the last seven and a half chapters demonstrating why that exact thing is fully impossible. It is not possible to live on my own in such a way that God sits back and goes, well, he got it figured out. He doesn't need anything from me. That guy's got it all together. That is not what Paul has in mind when he shares this. So if God is not justifying us because we have finally figured it out, why does Paul use the word? What does he mean when he says that God has justified those he has called? He means that Jesus has come. And through his life and his death, and his resurrection, he has gifted his own righteousness to us, hasn't he? He knew we couldn't be righteous all on our own. He knew that we couldn't live and act as God himself lives and acts. The whole history of scripture and the nation of Israel has been a lesson proving that exact point, that we on our own are not enough to get that completely right. And so his solution was to take his own righteousness and take it off like a cloak and to lay it on us. He took the substance of a truly godly life and gifted it to each one of us. And that is one of the great promises of scripture, that that is available to us in what Jesus has done. What Paul means when he says that we've been justified is that God sees in us the righteousness of his own son given to us by his own son. God sees himself in us. We have become like Christ because of his gift on our lives. And you want to know the really mind-blowing part? That's not why God loves us. Because Paul is going to launch into the next section. He's going to talk about God's great love for us. But the reason that God loves us is not because we have been justified by him. Not because we have been made right. Not because we share in his righteousness. He loves that those things are now true of us. But he loved us before that got done in our lives. Amen? His love for us was the reason that Jesus came and made those things available and brought them to bear. And the problem with that is, uh, oh, I apologize, I got lost in my own notes. <laughs> I skipped ahead, no. Um, in, the most, in the most literal way possible, Jesus came and brought that. He died on the cross because he thought we were worth it. He didn't wait for the justification process to be done. He came before that and expressed his love. The whole process of his life and his death and his resurrection was all worth it because he thought that you and I were worth it. He loved us and wanted to make a way for us to experience life with him. And I bring this up because it's easy to forget and get these events out of order 
and to get the cart before the horse in this situation. It's easy to fall into a place of assuming that God's love for us is based upon that justification, on the work that he's done, and that it's somehow contingent now on how I behave and how well I live into the calling of his upon my life. And that's important. How I live is incredibly important. In fact, that's a lot of what James is going to talk about in his book that you guys are going to be looking at. But the truth of it is, God's love for me, his opinion of me, is not based on how I live and on my behavior. That was already settled beforehand. We read the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, and we get this perfect picture. I want to read a quote this morning uh, from an author that I appreciate named David Benner. And he says this, Even more remarkable, God's love for you has nothing to do with your behavior. Neither your faithlessness nor your unfaithfulness alters divine love in the slightest degree. Like the father's love in the parable of the prodigal son, divine love is absolutely unconditional, unlimited, and unimaginably extravagant. Christians affirm a foundation of identity that is absolutely unique in the marketplace of spiritualities. Whether we realize it or not, our being is grounded in God's love. The generative love of God was our origin. The embracing love of God sustains our existence. The inexhaustible love of God is the only hope for our fulfillment. Love is our identity and our calling, for we are children of love, created from love, of love, and for love. Our existence makes no sense apart from divine love. That is the work that God is doing in us. And that is why Paul continues in the very next verses in 31. He says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes. Rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, or difficult sporting events, or financial difficulties, or lack of senior pastor, will any of those things separate us from the love of God? No, they cannot. Because God's opinion of us, his value for us, is solved already. It is fixed. When Jesus looked at us, he said, yeah, I'm going to the cross for that one, for that one, for that one. For these people, they are mine, and I want them in my family. They are worth it. And that truth is not going anywhere. But Paul also knows that as we live through circumstances like that, some of those things are going to cause us to doubt. They're going to cause us to wonder. We're going to live through seasons of life where we go, does God really love me? Is he really here in the middle of this? And that's why in verse 36, he gives us this quote where he quotes from Psalm 44. And in the context, as you're reading through the verses, at first it strikes a bit odd. He says this in 36, Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's great, Paul. Super uplifting there. Thank you for reminding me of the love of God that 
makes me a sheep to be slaughtered. He's quoting from Psalm 44, and the text of Psalm 44 is all about the people of God feeling distant and far away from God. It's all about them wondering, is God really here? Is he really with me? Am I really in his love? And the goal of Psalm 44 is to help remind them and encourage them and resolve. Nothing has separated you from God. It just feels like it right now. That's why he's quoting in 36. And so if you don't, if you don't go back and read Psalm 44, the quote feels really, really strange, but it does make sense given the context of what he's talking about at this point. But still, even with all of that, even with this incredible truth and this idea of the grounding, creating love of God being fixed and his value for us being resolved, it still leaves us with the question of where a godly life fits, doesn't it? Does my behavior even matter if it has nothing to do with God's love for me? If that's taken care of, and if my behavior doesn't alter that, then where does behavior fit? Is it important to live a godly life? You bet your socks it is. Yes. Okay? It's just that the process of living a godly life isn't the thing that establishes his value for us. Those are separate. The value and the fruit are different. Okay? The value is solved, and from out of that place of love and value, we learn how to bear fruit, and we learn how to live well. And that's where the word that Paul uses back in verse 30, where he says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the place where the word glorified starts to come in. The dictionary definition of the word glory is high renown or honor won by notable achievements, or magnificence or great beauty. The thing about glory is that it has to be perceived. It has to be seen or heard or tasted or touched or experienced in some way. Okay? It has to be interacted with. It needs an audience to receive it. It's got to become part of our lives, part of our reality. It has to happen somewhere in the world so that somebody can perceive it and be impacted by it. And in the best circumstances, in the ideal circumstance, that's exactly what we want the kingdom of God to be like. That's exactly what we want the Christian life to be like. We want people to see it, and we want them to see God in it and to be impacted by that. Have you guys had any experiences recently where you saw or experienced something that was deeply impactful to you, like maybe the duck game yesterday? I had, I had dinner with some friends of mine last night, immediately after the duck game, and my buddy came to me and he said, well, I know my heart works. You know, talking about that close shave at the end. If you're a Beavers fan, then maybe today doesn't feel quite so lucky for you. Although they lost to a really, really, really good team. So, you know, hold on to that. Are there even any Beavers fans here? Was that for nothing? There's a couple of you guys. Good. There's a lot of hope in that, okay? So... So when Paul says that God glorified us... He very much means to say that the world around us will be different because of the work that God is doing in us and because of how we live. And I want to be clear about how this works because the goal isn't for the world to be changed by my achievements or by my magnificence, is it? If we're sitting around waiting for the world to be changed by my magnificence, we're going to be here for a while, okay? It's a long road ahead of us. But this is why Paul started this conversation by talking about how God has gifted his righteousness to us. As God has gifted his righteousness to us, he also gifts his glory to us. As I live, the intention is for people to see God clearly through my life and through how I live. 
The question I'm left with is how am I peeling back the layers? How am I making the renown or the honor or the magnificence or the beauty of God known to those around me? How is my life glorifying him? How are people seeing him more clearly? And that's the conversation that James is going to start having. That's what he's concerned with, as you guys are going to start moving into October and looking at the book of James. When James writes, he is writing to a group of people who claim to know God, but whose lives are devoid of God's glory, and that disconnect concerns him deeply. And that's why he writes in the space that he writes into. He's not writing to them about their value. He's not trying to tell them that they're not children. He's not trying to somehow say God doesn't love you as people or as Christians. He knows that part is settled. But what isn't settled is how they are participating in the kingdom to make the greatness of God visible to the world because the glory of God matters, brothers and sisters. It needs to be seen, to be perceived by the world around us. Let's read the last few verses in chapter 8 here, starting in 37. It says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? When it comes to glorifying God and living in his righteousness, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. God is absolutely dedicated to helping you discover these things in your life and to living the life that he has created you for. He has your long-term good in view, and he is working you toward it. But we have to remember that this whole process is rooted in his love for us. That is the ground that all of this grows out of. And it's why Paul returns to that idea as he closes the chapter. My challenge this morning is simple, and it has two parts. First, if you're struggling to feel connected to God's righteousness or his glory in your life, then my encouragement for you is to focus on being connected to his love. Start there first. If you notice that God's righteousness seems to be absent or far away from you, or that his glory is not being demonstrated in your life, then maybe I suggest that you need to know his love more deeply this morning. What are you doing to daily experience his love for you? Are you listening to worship music? Are you spending time in prayer? Ask that God would help you to know that you are loved, that his eyes are on you. I'm going to read a section of that quote again from David Benner. He said, The generative love of God was our origin. The embracing love of God sustains our existence. The inexhaustible love of God is the only hope for our fulfillment. Love is our identity and our calling, for we are children of love, created from love, of love, and for love. Our existence makes no sense apart from divine love. It might be a Sunday school truth, but it's one that we cannot ever stop talking about. Amen? And it is one that we cannot ever stop seeking to experience for ourselves. I have to know that God loves me. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. But as they do, there's a second challenge that I have this morning. For those of you who do feel loved by God, for those of you for whom that conversation is relatively settled, you know you're secure in that space, the challenge for you then becomes... Are you experiencing now the life that God has called you to live out in his righteousness and his glory? What does God want you to do through, what does God want to do through your life today or this week? 
Where are the opportunities for the people around you to see the glory of God through how you live? That becomes the second challenge. Be loved first and then live out of that place. Know God's love first and then allow him to speak and demonstrate his glory through you and in you. Can we pray together this morning? God, I thank you for today. I thank you for this space. And God, that's my prayer for people, for your church this morning, is that we would know we are loved. We would know that we are drawn, invited, uh, adopted into your family as sons and daughters in you, and that you love us. God, let us be convinced of that. Let us experience your heart for us today. Let us know your opinion of us and who we are. And from that space, God, let us be inspired. Let us be built up. Let us be drawn forward to live the lives that you have designed us for as you move us toward the great good that you have for us, being made more like Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen.